We continue in our series that we've entitled Jesus, the greatest of all time. And we've been in this series looking at the New Testament book of Hebrews. And we're in the final weeks of this series that we've been in since uh, last fall, looking at this book written to Jewish Christians who had left the Jewish faith and now we're getting pushback and persecution for standing up for Jesus. And the author says, listen, all the persecution, all the pushback is worth it because Jesus is superior. He is better than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. And so keep running the race with endurance and perseverance, the race that's marked out for you. Well, 12 chapters he's given us of doctrine, of good Bible teaching, but in chapter 13, he's closing out this long sermon, and he says, before I go, I don't want you to forget some things. Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly what the writer is talking about. If you ever are about to head out for a, a time away, an extended time away from your kids, you no doubt will go down the list of things you want them to remember. And in the Badal house, it usually happens with mom and dad in the laundry room yelling to the boys, hey, don't forget this, don't forget that. Things like, hey, don't forget to clean up after yourselves. Don't forget to take the dog out for some walks. Don't forget to feed him. Don't forget to pick up your brother at practice. Don't forget your homework. All of these different things that we know that our boys will inevitably forget about. But they're important things. They have implications with regards to their lives. And so before we leave, we want to remind them of things that they may forget. Well, last week we started verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, and the list began. The list to show hospitality to strangers and prisoners. Uh, the a reminder to live sexually pure lives. The reminder not to allow the love of money to overtake you. And we're going to get four more this morning. Four reminders that he doesn't want us to forget about because we can at times forget these things. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 7, and we're going to go all the way through verse 16, but let's just start with the first couple verses. Here's the first thing that he doesn't want us to forget. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today, and forever. Let's stop there. The first thing that the author wants us to remember that he thinks we might forget is that we need to remember, we need to not forget treasuring those who shaped our faith. We need to treasure those who helped to shape our faith. The author begins by speaking about these leaders. He says, remember these leaders, your leaders. Now, who are these leaders? These leaders are not the church elders, because we're going to learn about in verse 17 what our response to the church, to the present church elders are. These men who keep watch over our souls, he talks about in verse 17. So it's not this group of leaders, the current church leaders. It's another group. And what we come to realize as we begin to understand this group of leaders are those who had gone before these Hebrew Christians who had helped to shape them, mold them into the Christians that they were. The author says, I want you to treasure them. 
He says, remember, literally in the tense that it's given, it's a continuous action, that we are always remembering these leaders who impacted our lives and brought us to the place we are by the grace and goodness of Christ. We are to remember their past actions. Many scholars believe because of the words that were spoken to you, the past tense of that in the text, that these leaders had maybe died. In fact, they go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, where it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, that that is an allusion to these leaders who gave up their life for the faith. Maybe these leaders were some of the very people that they were to remember who were in prison for their faith. Maybe some of these leaders, no doubt, were in the midst of the church that they were attending. Whoever they were, they were to remember them. Well, what were they to remember? Warm and cuddly thoughts and memories about these men and women? Notice the text. They were to remember the word of God that was spoken to them. These are men and women who gave what they knew about Christ to another. What they knew about walking and talking with Jesus, they gave to someone else. Let me ask you this morning, who are some of the people that helped you get spiritually where you're at today? What Sunday school teachers, youth group workers, people within the church, maybe it's a small group leader, maybe it's a spouse or a parent. Let me ask you this, whoever they are, have you ever taken time to thank them? Maybe they've long passed, and have you stopped to call their family and friends and say, hey, I know you miss them, and I do too, and here's the reason why I miss them so much, because they shaped my life. Now, the best way to remember them isn't just to think about them, but to examine and to emulate them. You should write that down. The way we remember these leaders is by examining their outcome of their way of life, And to emulate them, this is what the writer says. He says, consider, examine the outcome of their way of life and imitate, mimic, follow their faith. So the way that we remember those who have gone before us is by examining their life, looking intently into how they lived their life and how God blessed it and the goods and the bad times that they experienced. And then to make a conscious decision, I want to be like God them. I'm going to follow them. I'm going to live like they did. I'm going to talk like they did. I'm going to conduct myself in the way that they conducted their life. That's how I'm going to remember them. That is how I'm going to treasure them. Well, as a way of example, let me illustrate some of the leaders in my life. Some of those leaders who I've examined their way of life and emulated. It starts at the beginning My mom and dad, Bill and Michelle Bedall, for those that don't know, my dad is an immigrant from Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, My mom is a West Aurora girl, born and raised. My dad immigrated here in 1966 and was stationed here by uh, uh, some family and friends and some choices of happenstance, if you will, to live and reside in Aurora. They met and got married in 1970, and then moved out west not too long after that into the town of Hinkley. They had three kids. Now, my parents aren't anything special in the sense of an earthly um, 
you know, pizzazz, if you will. Middle class people working hard, raising their kids. But here's what I love about my mom and dad who are still with us is that each and every day they served and honored God. They served him in the good times and in the bad. They continue to serve their God. And what a modeling they've been, not only for me and my brothers, but also for our children and our wives. Uh, They've been a model to the community. They've been a model in so many ways. My mom and dad, like Paul told us about Timothy's mom and grandmother from infancy, how I knew the Holy Scriptures and how it made me wise unto salvation. I am who I am because of these two dear people. But you know, leaders come in all ages and times. The second leader in my life is my older brother, Chris. I've talked about Chris. Chris was my older brother by two and a half, almost three years. My brother's no longer with us. Not too long after these pictures were taken, Chris would be killed in a car accident after falling asleep at the wheel coming home from a youth group event. Chris's uh, life was really an awesome life. As you can see, a good-looking young man. He was athletic. Uh, He was the kind of guy that guys wanted to be. He was the kind of guy girls wanted to be with. He was an incredibly popular young man. Uh, He was a homecoming king. He was all the things that you would want to be. But Chris, in his junior year, after uh, doing many of the same things that Micah even was talking about, allowing his life to... Uh, get far from God, Chris made a decision. He was going to get serious about the Lord. And God began to work in Chris's life. And what began to happen was Chris made a decision to give up whatever popularity he had, give up some of the bad relationships that he had, and for the rest of his junior year, he was going to give it to Christ. During his speech class, Chris gave a, a, a series of persuasive speeches about why following Christ is the greatest thing you could ever do. And revival began to happen in our local high school. Now, there was a lot of pushback. Chris lost friends. He lost popularity. He lost a girlfriend out of it because he began to choose Christ over the things of this world. Now, you could have said Chris gave up a lot. But it wouldn't be until his death that we would see the fullness of the impact that he had. Unbeknownst to us, we knew Chris was a well-liked guy, but what transpired at Chris's wake and funeral was just downright miraculous. Over 2,000 people attended his wake alone. It took my parents almost 10 hours to shake the hands of every person who came. And one by one, talking of the impact of Chris sharing Christ to teenagers that they had never come into contact with. In fact, a local Catholic high school, Aurora Central Catholic High School, had a senior English project writing about the person who most had impacted their life and who they wanted to imitate. Ten seniors wrote about my brother Chris. Eight had never met him. And what began to happen was lives began to be changed. And even to this day, my parents hear about people who had rebelled against God But the seeds that Chris planted had changed their life now in their 40s and 50s. You see, 16-year-olds can have powerful examples of their faith. Micah just showed us how great young people are when God grabs a hold of them. Amen? And so I thank God for my brother. I would not be the man that I am today 
Chris modeled for me at 14 years of age. I was longing for the popularity he had, the girls that he was around, the buddies he had, and the, and the great uh, renown that he had made for himself. And to watch my older brother give that up for the call of Christ was simply amazing. I thank God for my brother. And even to today, 45 years of age, that 16-year-old kid is still sending me lessons about what it means to follow Jesus. Well, another one that's really important is my youth pastor and his wife, John and Susan Avery. Many of you know who I'm talking about because they served as youth leaders here at Village Bible Church and now are serving in Northern Virginia, pastoring. And I love these two. I love them, first of all, because they endured four years of Timbidal, okay? Now, they would say, I pushed them and pressed them more than any other teenager they've ever had, and they're now almost 30 years of youth ministry. Uh, I ch- amen, yeah. I, I challenged them and pressed them, but you know what they always said? They said that I was loved by God and that God had great plans for me. And even though at times I didn't believe it, I was thankful that they endured, yes, endured the high school Tim. And they gave me opportunities, and they prayed for me. But even more than that, this couple that's only about 10 years older than me, they modeled what a beautiful marriage looks like. Now, I'd seen it with my mom and dad, but you don't go there with your mom and dad, right? And so seeing this young couple, the way they loved one another is the way that I see myself loving my wife, Amanda. The way they loved their children, how they dealt with their children. In many ways, I find myself hearing John and Susan's words of love and even correction when I speak to my own children. I am thankful for these men and women. Now, are any of these super saints Are any of these people we should build statues for? The answer is no. We are to remember them and to treasure them. Now, I could say also there are many in the audience today who have impacted my life because here's the great joy. I grew up here at Village Bible Church. My times of Sunday school and youth group and vacation Bible school and all of that The reason why I'm here, where I am, doing what I do is, yes, by the grace of Almighty God, but it is because of men and women who went before me, and by their faithfulness now, I get to imitate their faith. Now, let me ask you, who have you imitated to get you to where you are today? Stop, thank God for them, and maybe give them a call today, and thank them, and tell them where you've come, and how they had a part. What an encouragement that would be. But can I stop and say also, who are you a leader of? And maybe today there's not anyone who would call you, and it's not because you're not gifted. It's not because you don't have the abilities to do so, but maybe you've chosen things other than pouring into that next generation of people. Again, I just want to highlight my brother in his baptismal message. He now is helping to shape those younger than him as a way to be a leader so that they can mimic and imitate the faith of Micah. What a great example Who's, who are you following and who is following you? Now, notice in verse 8, and i got to get moving because i got three more points, but notice in verse 8 that we have this very famous passage of Scripture. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we see that on bookmarks. We see that in pictures. We see it even painted on walls. Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in our context... 
It has a meaning that I think we miss out on when we just read it by itself. And the reason why this is articulated is a word of encouragement that as you remember those who served you well in the past and as you serve those in the future by being a model of faith, that same Jesus who was living and moving in the lives of those who impacted your life is the same Jesus that you can tap into to impact the lives of others. And we can have faith, we can have hope that Jesus is going to continue this work until he comes to take us home. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying prophetically, folks, this Christianity is never going to stop. And how true is that? 2,000 years later, almost a globe apart, here we are, a room full of people singing and proclaiming the same truth of the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ who has saved us and who is sanctifying us and who has promised to take us to be with him one day. Amen? And so we have some treasuring to do And we have some serving of others to do. And so let us remember those who have served us by modeling and imitating their example by leading and serving others. Now remember, he's just going through this list. And there's no real rhyme or reason, if you will, to this list. And he now moves to verse number 9. And what he does becomes a bit disjointed. Even as you read it, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Let's look at it. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If you're going, huh? You're with a lot of people. What we've just read, most commentators say, is the most difficult of passages to understand. And one of the reasons why is we don't fully know what the writer is talking about. Now we know that what he's saying in verses 9 through 12, he illustrates in verse 13. That gives us a hint of a little bit about what's going on. But what it seems to be talking about is the relational engagement that these Hebrew believers would have with their Jewish counterparts, okay? And that will lead to a certain action. So let's talk about it. So notice in verse 9, he says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And then he says this, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food which have not benefited those devoted to them. There was this first century teaching amongst the Jews that as you participated in uh, the different festivals and meals that littered the Jewish calendar as they followed God, that as they participated in those events and ate the food of those festivities, they became spiritually more powerful. They became more holy. 
The writer says, don't fall for that strange teaching. How are you strengthened? By God's unmerited favor, his grace to you. It has nothing to do with what you eat. What you eat will not make you any more holy. A heart that is holy is a heart that is given to the grace and mercy of God that lives in obedience, not in the eating of things. And then he goes on and he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that is the high priest, have no right to eat. So what was going on was that as these Jewish Christians were entering into houses on Passover of the Feast of Tabernacles or these many other festivities, the Jewish people would say, you don't get to eat with us. Oh, we're not sharing our Passover meal with us. You're a follower of that Jesus. So, so you are no longer able to eat with us. They were getting kicked out of the Jewish celebrations. Of which the, the word of encouragement is, we have an altar for which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That is, we have a place with Christ, the seat at his table, where no high priest in the old covenant would be able to go. But that created a problem. And the problem was as you were beginning to be ostracized for being a follower of Jesus Christ when you interacted with your friends and family of the Jewish background. And so we see in verse 13, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach, underline that word, those two words there, the reproach, if you underline in your Bible, that he endured. So one of the things that was going on was not only were you kept afar from the festivities because you were a follower of Jesus Christ, but what would happen is, is there was reproach against Jesus by the Jewish people. And here is how it went. Now, right away, we would say, what reproach did Jesus experience? That is embarrassment, um, scorn, mocking. What, what did that look like? Well, we know that Jesus would have been humiliated because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might embrace and experience the righteousness of God. But a Jewish individual wouldn't know that. Christians would understand that. And so what was the reproach that they're talking about? What is it that they did to make fun of Jesus in their gatherings that would cause the Christians, in essence, to not stand with Jesus? Here's how it went. What they would do is they would mock the way Jesus died. Jesus was taken outside of the city by the Romans. Listen, and we don't think about this because of the pictures we have of the crucifixion, but Jesus would have been stripped naked for all the world to see. He would have been beaten and bloodied, and he would have died. And what the Jewish people would have done at this point is they would have mocked, you're a follower of the naked, bloodied Jesus who died and said he was God? That's your savior? That's who the greatest of all time is? You know, our greatest is Moses. Our greatest is Abraham. Our greatest is David. They were great men. Your Jesus, your savior was just that naked, bloodied individual who died after he said he was God. What a joke. And in that moment, the people, the Hebrew people, would begin to take a step back in not following Christ. What they would do is what the disciples did. And so what the author is saying is, when that happens, 
go outside and meet Jesus in his humiliation. What they're saying is, write this down, take a stand for Christ. When people humiliate Jesus and humiliate you for following Jesus, what you do is not step away from Jesus, but you step into Jesus. You meet Jesus outside of the camp in his humiliation and you lock arms with him and say, I am with Jesus. I stand in solidarity with Jesus. Now, you say, that's easy, Tim. Next time I'm at a Passover dinner where they're making fun and mocking Jesus, I'll stand up. Well, listen, as Gentiles, we don't go to Jewish festivals and, and gatherings usually. But how many of us have been a part of parties and gatherings where the name of Jesus has been reviled, where Jesus has been mocked, where being a part of a church or reading the Bible, believing the things that we do are brought into the arena and scorned by those we know or maybe don't know. And how often are we like many of the disciples who want want to wander away and abandon and desert Jesus? In that moment, if you want to live out Hebrews 13, 9 through 13, then what you and I must do is not back away from Jesus, my friends. We need to stand for Jesus. We need to step up. Well, listen, Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was left exposed in his crucifixion. But here's the thing that Jesus said. If you will not confess me before others, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. And so being a follower of Jesus Christ, now this is easy. Listen, I'll go back to my brother Micah for a moment. It's easy for him to proclaim in the waters in front of a bunch of other Christians that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. It's true for me as I preach to a group of Christians. It's easy for me to do this. But it gets hard when we're at school. It gets hard when we're at work. It gets hard when we're in the minority. It gets difficult when we're the only one who will stand up. It becomes even more difficult when we see other Christians back away to stand up for our faith. But that is exactly what the writer's saying. Don't forget, even when it's hard, to stand for Christ. Now, why would we do this? Why would we do it and risk our popularity, risk a work promotion, risk our standing within our community? Why would we allow ourselves to be penalized in this present day? The answer is in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. There's nothing here for us to hold on to. There's nothing here that's so worth it that's going to make it into eternity. And so what the author says is, if we want to truly stand for Christ, then we need to uh, look to heaven, and we need to seek heaven and not earth. Write that down, that we need to not only take a stand for Christ, but we need to thank Christ by seeking heaven and not earth. Why is it that we would be willing to experience persecution and revilement from others? Because we seek a city that is to come. We've got this heavenly city. We go back to this Mount Zion that was spoken about in Hebrews 12 that we wait for, that is promised for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, then I'll come back to take you to be with me forever. 
And so the reason why we are willing to lose our place in this world, listen to me, is because God has reserved a place for us in heaven. And because that place is so great, so awesome, so wonderful, we are willing to endure 70, 80 years of difficulty and persecution because we've got a place just beyond glory. And so we thank God by not living for the here and now, but living for the promise of heaven. Now, how do we do that? The author finishes up and he says, the way that we do that is by continually offering, notice verse 15, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The contest is acknowledging his name when nobody else will. And what we do in acknowledging his name is we do not neglect to do good and to share what we have. Now, let's stop there. One of the things that we'll do is we'll say, you know, I'll stand for Christ. And I'll live for the promise of heaven and not the here and now. But you know what? If someone reviles me, I'm reviling them back. If someone mistreats me, I'm going to mistreat them back. If, if someone uh, does wrong to me, then I'm going to do wrong back to them. And we've got to remember the words of Jesus. We love our enemies. We hate those who persecute us. And what the writer says is that we treat others well by serving and sharing with them. I want you to remember a couple people. I want you to remember those who served you by showing you Christ. Write those down in the first point. Now in the final point, the people that he's talking about are the people that make your blood boil. The biggest mouthpiece against Christ. And what the author is saying is, I want you to treat them well. I want you to share with them. I want you to serve them. I don't want you to repay evil with evil, but as Paul said, to repay evil with good. And in doing so, though they revile you, the writer of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter himself said, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they glorify God on the day he visits. And the idea here is that even though they don't like you, even though they make fun of you, they can't make fun of the good deeds you have done. So treat people well. Don't repay evil with evil. But show love and kindness to the most vocal of critics against Christ and his kingdom. And here's why. Because you'll be vindicated in the end. You see, on that great and glorious day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that enemy, listen to me, that vocal person in your school or in your workplace, you know where they're going to be? Right next to you on their hands and knees praising the name of Jesus. Now the difference will be as they acknowledge Jesus in that moment, the acknowledgement that they rebelled against Jesus will lead them to a place of eternal punishment. But for us, on that day of vindication, we will continue offering praise and worship to the God who saved us. And we will experience the fruit of our labors in standing tall for Christ and for his name's sake in a world that wants to knock us down. So, the author finishes with these words. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
There's nothing greater than when mom and dad get home and everything that we said as we were leaving was done. The great joy, parents, amen, the great joy when your children do what you've asked them to do and when you come back after an absence that they've done what you've wanted, there is no greater joy to know that they've done what you've asked of them. God has asked of us to do some things, to treasure those who came before us, to stand and take a stand for Christ, to thank Christ by seeking heaven and not earth and then treating others well. And when Christ comes, you know what he will be pleased with when we do this. Now, how do we do this? Do we continually tell people over and over again, Jesus is my savior, Jesus, you just lead with that? That seems a bit odd. And so what the author seems to be indicating is that these sacrifices that are pleasing to God are all the things that he talked about in Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality to strangers and and to prisoners. Uh, Do not neglect your sexual purity. Do not uh, allow the love of money to fill your life. Remember your leaders. Treat others well, because when we do these things, we please our heavenly Father, and we give him great glory. We proclaim to ourselves and to a watching world that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was, and we show the world that we've been changed by Christ. Now, what we're going to now move to is a time of communion. And communion's the time that Christ instituted for the church to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I would give you time to prepare and to grab the elements that were given to you as you entered in. But this is an opportunity for us to proclaim as a church who we believe in and who we live for. Now that's easy to do on Sunday morning. So as we prepare ourselves for communion, I want you to ask the question, in this last week, how did you do at taking a stand for Christ? The Bible says that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let me ask you, how did we do at proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to a watching world this last week? How did we live for Christ? Are we bringing reproach to his name by sinning against him? As the worship team plays just very quietly under our time of meditation, I would ask that you and I would examine our hearts and remember the grace of Jesus Christ and remember the grace that Jesus gave by sending others around us to teach us and to guide us and to lead us And to ask the question this morning, are or is your life modeling that? And if it's not, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's take some time and confess before the Lord before we partake of these elements.